wired into technology transformation. This is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Welcome to the Digital Bulletin Podcast. True to our tagline, we are all about inspiring technology leaders. Now that's in terms of what we try to do, but it's mainly in terms of the people we meet. My name's Romilly Broad, and I'm happy to say I'm joined at this table on the 43rd floor of a Manhattan skyrise by three people who are uniquely well positioned to address today's topic, the future of work. Ted Shelton is an expert partner for business process redesign at Bain & Company, the global consultancy, um, and as such is working with some of the biggest organizations on the planet to help them address their need to adapt to the emerging realities of a changing world of work. Alongside Ted is uh, Bharath Yadler, uh, who is the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives at Workato, a global leader in workflow automation. And Avinash Misra, founder and CEO of Scan Scan AI, is our final guest today. Uh, A young, just four years old company, but that is already rapidly revolutionizing how organizations can go about fully understanding uh, their processes and people and how they do what they do. So welcome everybody to our, our room. And Ted, I'll start with you. As we've already uh, had lots of conversations today, you are something of a, um, I would suggest, scholar of the, the topic that is change and how we do work, what it means, what it means to society and businesses that are obviously the glue that binds most of what we are and what we do. Um, why are we talking about the future of work now? Why does it matter right now? Well, I think the primary reason that we should be thoughtful about the future of work is actually connected to thinking about the future of humanity. And if we think back on human history, there are, I would argue, three really critical moments there that were transformative in defining who the human species really was. So we started out life as hunter-gatherers, and then we had the origin of civilization around the same time that we invented agriculture. Agriculture allowed us to stay still in one place, build cities, uh, develop writing, knowledge, government, all the things that we sort of take for granted today as a foundation for civilization. And then it took from that point until the 19th century for the next major change to occur. We were an agricultural society until really the 1870s when the population began to migrate from uh, working in agriculture to working in industry. So you could say that the steam engine, of course, was developed maybe in the Industrial Revolution, perhaps 100 years earlier, but it was really around 1870 uh, that society started to transform. uh, And uh, the mechanization of labor meant that, for example, in agriculture, we've been able to move from 90% of the population engaged in farming to 3%, and yet, obviously, we feed many, many more people today uh, on uh, the land that we farm. Um, That mechanization, of course, brought about everything that we know to be in the modern world. Um, The global corporation, um, all of the industry, all of the products that we use every day. Um, And it was about 60 years ago um, that the first thoughts around artificial intelligence began. Um, and the first research work done at Cornell University by Warren Rosenblatt. And the interesting thing about change is that it happens slowly at first and then all at once. It's really the last 10 years when artificial intelligence has exploded. Um, And an enormous number of innovations have occurred. 
um, that have changed uh, what's possible. We wake up every morning now, or I do anyway, and say, wow, that was impossible yesterday, and now it's possible. Uh, and I would argue that this is the third major transformation. So agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, and now a computation revolution um, that is really going to change everything about our society. Yeah, and, and Barath, if I can come to you, obviously from your perspective, um, uh, in a leadership position at a company that's active on the, the coalface, to use a slightly an anachronistic term, <laughs> of change, um, how well prepared are we for the change that's happening in terms of the pace that's happening? The, uh, you know, one of the things which when Ted mentioned is a very interesting point. Like when there's a third uh, change that we're actually kind of seeing it, right? So, you know, look at from the industrial revolution to, uh, you know, the world of when how mechanization has actually changed. Uh, I, I kind of look at when from the societal standpoint, then I'll kind of connect to, to, to what you're talking about, uh, right? So the, the, the idea of like from a steam engine to a robotic surgery things have progressed extensively well in terms of what the things are. I mean, like how, I mean, you know, how much of data is being processed today? How much of process changes are actually happening? How we do things, right, and so in our daily lives. And then what is the experiences that we're actually kind of going through and what those experiences changes are, are very, very interesting things. When we look at all of those, how well are we prepared for change? I would say like, when, yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of talk about it. There's a lot of momentum about it. Like, when are we really really prepared for change from the type of the thing that that needs to be integrated from human and the systems getting completely integrated into life together? You've seen this in the films, right? So in terms of like when how the uh, the, the, the future uh, uh, future of uh, things men would look like, but is that closer to reality? Absolutely not. But the key, key things which is there is like Ted was mentioning. These are the this is the 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 era of computational, uh, you know, computational change, the transformation that is actually happening. And that, by far, I think, mean there, there are a lot more, uh, uh, lot more systems that are actually being created, a lot more impact that is being created, a lot more changes that are being brought in, in, be it from the academic standpoint or be it from the uh, enterprises and the business standpoint as well, which is see that that change is actually happening. And that is now. Right. And, and Avanash, if I can come to you. Um, Scan, just for the uneducated, uh, is uh, a, a set of tools that enable organizations, particularly big ones, to really dig down and understand what it is that's actually happening in them uh, in terms of the processes, which are many and often fragmented and so on. That means that you've possibly personally spent a lot of time peering deep into the layers of organizations. And what, what would you say to, to that same question in terms of, you know, what have you, what have you learned? What has Scan learned about, about companies' readiness? I think the res readiness in some sense is interspersed. It has not become mainstream. Uh, who was it who said that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed? And so you have all of these mechanisms and around automation technology, around uh, computational linguistics, around workflow automation, and so on and so forth. All of these available in certain pockets but to tie them together end to end, you, you, what you're missing is a holistic understanding of truly how all of this is, is working today. Once you get that understanding, then what is interspersed becomes mainstream. I think that's the chasm we are all crossing, is that we, have the, we can see it working in a certain pocket, but how do you make it work across the board, across companies, right? That's where the, the bulk of the challenge lies. And if you pick up any technology from Blockchain, shouldn't even say that word nowadays. <laughs> but, but, but from there to your Amazon Alexa, 
and the continuity of experience that needs to be created, right? By the way, both of them have had major write downs in the last week or so. Yeah, good, good timing for, to bring those up. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's what I'm trying to say is that uh, there is there are pockets, and there's understanding, and there's also almost clarity, almost clarity as to how it should be used. It's about doing it at scale and doing it in an integrated fashion. Right, and and Ted Bain Bain obviously is well positioned to lead a lot of that effort. Um, I I wanted to ask about fear, um, which might sound <laughs> slightly dramatic, but you've talked about these important moments of change in throughout history which presumably were accompanied by a certain fear um the people that must adapt to changing ways of doing things probably are fearful of that change when it happens and i'm guessing it was probably true when they and somebody invented the plow um because suddenly they their whole purpose in life gathering berries and hunting animals (laughs) seemed to make them feel redundant but do you do you sense that um Fear is an obstacle still to um, encouraging organizations, particularly large ones, to, to become resilient to the changes that are, that are needed. And is that something that leaders such as those in this room need to bear in mind? I, I think, I think this, it is often cast as fear, where actually the problem is allowing people to see what the benefit for them would be, right? Because what it, what it really is is not the fear of the change, but the fear of the loss. So the loss of something that would be... And, and in fact, I think you know, there's some interesting studies now um, that suggest that the movement from a hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural society actually resulted in a worse lifestyle for the majority of humans. Um, and, uh, and, and we were enslaved for thousands of years, um, but, you know, to the land and, and by the most powerful, instead of having freedom of movement, right? And so arguably there was loss, right? And the fear would be justified. And I think in this case, um, the loss is uh, misplaced, um, but that we've done a bad job of communicating to the people who will be affected what the gain would be. Um, and critical to any change is that all of the people that are involved in the change understand what's in it for them. Right? You need the frontline people in an organization to understand how will their lives be improved, the managers to understand how their jobs and careers will be improved, and the executives themselves, their compensation. While they should and they do care about the outcome for their shareholders and for the company and for the communities they serve, they also want to know what's in it for them. We all do. And so uh, I, I guess I'd reflect on something one of my clients said um, when talking about automation uh, for a large insurance company. You know, it is actually unethical for us to tell our employees every day, you're doing a great job. Everything's fine. You're doing a great job. Everything's fine. And then one day to say, you're fired. We've automated your job. And instead, we need to be having these conversations today. We need to be saying, look, you aren't being eliminated, but the work that you do will be eliminated. And the key to you being successful is to learn new things that you will do that will add value to our company or to the economy. And we need to help you on that journey. That's the ethical role for us as a company. Um, But you also need to take responsibility for investigating and understanding the future of work for you so that next year and in 10 years that you are still a productive member of society and also hopefully happier and more satisfied with the work that you do. Right. And society as a whole is something that should benefit. Um, And 
probably we need to explain that as well. So, um, Avinash, maybe you could... Uh, no, I was, I was trying to raise another point in that things. Maybe we have not done a good job or maybe we've done a better job at explaining the efficiency arguments of all these things. And we've done a poor job at explaining the effectiveness notions that relate to work. No one wants to go to a job and hide. No one wants to do a poor job. No one wants to be ineffective at work. And I think maybe the framing has for far too long because the way you need to report to Wall Street what you're doing has focused on the efficiency argument, which has led to only one-sided view that I want to make this more efficient, efficient, efficient. In fact, to my mind, the argument should be how can we make people more effective and efficiency as a byproduct of that effectiveness? In, in, in truly spot on, right? So when, when you talk about, when, in fact, a very interesting point that you brought up, from a fear of change to fear of loss, that's a kind of a journey that kind of takes, and any change is actually kind of, it starts with, uh, oh my gosh, I mean, this is something that I don't want to do it, right? So that's, that's always the case. But you look at the whole thing in terms of, I mean, whether it be it's automation technology, be it as like in you know, robotic surgeries, right? And so the, imagine the first, the plight of the first person who got, a, who got himself or herself operated with a robotic uh, machine, right? The, the fear of overcoming that fear of change is, is a very important aspect. And the same thing that happens to even businesses as well I mean, across, the, across even the societal norms as well. The aspect to just kind of focus on what Avinash was talking about in terms of automation and explaining to the employees about your job is, I mean, what you're doing is great and uh, you know, what you're doing is great and to the point that Ted brought up. That in one sudden day, talk, talk about saying that, okay, your job is gone uh, because we're automating something. It's not about just automating uh, just a, what a person is doing. It's actually about bringing in the efficiencies, efficacies in terms of I mean, how you're actually kind of dri driving the effectiveness of that particular person. It's actually improving the level and the lifestyle of that person uh, in, in, in an organization, an enterprise setting, right? And then also think about the third E, what I call, the three E's is what I call, efficiency, efficacy, and then the experience of that particular person. The same person actually kind of looking at you know, a bank data reader, like let's say for example, writing up and copying the form from one Excel sheet to another Excel sheet, and imagine that person's daily life is now kind of changing, kind of more doing more meaningful work while that is actually being automated. You know, it's, it's a very interesting thing the productivity kind of goes up, the experience goes up, and that's how you're actually kind of changing the thing, I mean, changing the, the, the norms of the society as well. Even, imagine going back into the, uh, the shop floor assembly line when it was first introduced, right? Um, before that, people were actually kind of fitting the bolts and nuts with their hands. Shop floor assembly line came in, it changed their lives, for good or for bad, for good, for larger extent of the humanity, right? for some of the time which they thought about initially was, oh, it's taking away my job, was a transient one. But in a larger scheme of things, it actually kind of created more jobs. It created more effective uh, ways of actually working for that particular person. That's the way that I would actually think about from a fear of change perspective. Great, and so just to, um, to bring up the society at large topic, one of the um, more challenging questions uh, perhaps might be um, the one where we think about the equality of distribution of the benefits here. So it's a big topic, particularly when we are looking at uh, politicians grandstanding at, at COP conferences and so on, where the debate around how you distribute the effort to address big challenges uh, matters because otherwise people get left behind. How, how might we uh, universalize the benefits of 
the future of work, if you like. We're talking about sophisticated, expensive stuff. How, how do you think we might attend? I'll put that question to you first. Is that a, is, am I manufacturing a concern where there isn't one, or do you think that is something that we need to think about? Well, I guess I would answer in reflection on two different but related points. One is overall prosperity, which I think every measure of human well-being has improved over the last few hundred years in every part of the world. So we live longer, we have healthier lives, we have more food, there are fewer people starving as a result, right? Fewer children um, uh, die in childbirth. Um, less crime. Less crime, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think one aspect of our continuously improving technology has been to be able to provide the population of the planet as a whole with a better lifestyle. Now, at the same time, um, we also recognize that there's inequity, right? That there is a growing gap between uh, the wealthiest and the poorest. So even if you say that the poorest are better off than the poorest were 200 years ago, the poorest are further away. Um, so the kings and the queens, uh, you know, were closer to the peasants than the billionaires are today to, uh, you know, the people living in Jakarta. Um, and, uh, and so that... I think should give us pause to understand how the dynamics of our society are best organized. Because at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is what are the mechanics that we want as a civilization to govern how we are going to produce that prosperity that is valuable. So the first point, this growing prosperity in the world, we want more and more of that for everyone, right? So what are the mechanics that produce that? And is the inequity a necessary side effect or can it be ameliorated as we continue to increase the general benefit for all, right? And I think then you get into a conversation about geopolitics and, you know, what kinds of organizational structures do you want as a society to be able to govern innovation, industry, you know, is a uh, capitalist society the best way to encourage innovation uh, or should you instead replace it with a top-down command and control economy that is going to be able to more equitably distribute resources? Um, and, and that's a, you know, a, a competition of ideas that, to my mind, as a U.S. citizen living here uh, in the first part of the 21st century, uh, I think has been answered. I think capitalism is the best way that we've come up with, one that's governed by a strong uh, civil organization that is able to reflect on the potential damage to the environment, um, be able to make sure that there is care and feeding for the population, but one that permits in innovation um, and, in fact, encourages that and rewards that because ultimately all the problems we face as a society and as a civilization require more innovation to solve them. And so we need to have a system that encourages innovation. I, I don't see another system on the planet that has been as effective as capitalism in encouraging innovation. So even if you say we do have a set of side effects uh, that need to be ameliorated, we certainly do not want to um, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Bring up an old No, 100%. Uh, in fact, in fact uh, the question has been asked often, not just about this, but been asked to, you know, system forms of government, right? I mean, uh, and the answer has always come back after a lot of debate is always the same. 
that is democracy the best system uh, for us to govern, you know, for us to, it may or may not be, but it's the best system that we know of. And so in the same way, uh, the modern capitalistic society, is it the best? Maybe not. But is it the best that we are aware of from the perspective of solving the problems that it creates, environment and so on and so forth? I think that is the best answer that we have. Right. And to, to spin that back to the boardroom, if you like, um, in your, obviously, everyone in this room, uh, with the possible exception of myself, spends a lot of time with uh, the very topmost leaders of very significant organizations. What's your sense, if I can just put this to, to everybody, that there is a desire to achieve uh, these results within uh, organizations that are you know, driven by our capitalist um, uh, KPIs, if you like, um, where we're saying we're looking at automation, we're looking at the future of work, we're looking at how those things are going to impact the experiences of the people that constitute our organizations. Is, is your sense that part of the driver for this is a desire on the part of those organizations to give back more value to their communities and the world around them as well, partly perhaps because it's very important to the employees that they're actually affecting? Would you say that that's true? Is that the sense that you're getting from your engagements? So at least from my side, yes. When you know, like when it's been part of significant, uh, uh, you know, like the ideas and significant uh, interests that people are actually kind of getting into, which is the while there is capitalistic society that drives in terms of KPIs and metrics, which is towards the formation of the business and then how you're driving the business. But there's also kind of responsibility towards the society as well, which kind of comes. In. Like for example, you talk about the ESG initiatives, etc. Right? A uh, lot of those actually drive the automation abilities as well. And why is that? The reason is, you go and look and think about that impact that you're actually creating from a society standpoint, you kind of work backwards and say that's an important for the way that you do the business, and that actually feeds back. So that is something that is actually kind of incorporated into the thinking, and at least that's what I've been kind of uh, encountering with the, with the business leaders, men, you know, whoever that I've been talking to as well. Yeah, I think, I think that the last couple of years, with the number of crises that we faced uh, on a global basis, whether they were economic or the pandemic or now warfare in Europe for the first time since World War II. Um, what they've shown us all is that we are living today in a very interconnected global economy. Um, and we are all dependent upon each other. And I think the best business leaders recognize that as well. And so when they consider their responsibility and their ability to grow long-term value in their organizations, they recognize that that long-term value is interconnected as well to the environment, to the communities they serve, um, to their employees, and to their customers. And so you can no longer think about business as being just about wealth creation. You have to think about it as being uh, something that encompasses all the values of driving better for all those constituencies. Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, like, I mean, that, that's what I see. Right? I mean, there's a, in fact, when the last question that you actually asked about in terms of benefits being equally distributed, when you look at this, there's benefits are both short-term and long-term. You know, there's some kind of a benefits that you look at in terms of short-term that needs to happen right now, which is what the KPIs from a business standpoint that you drive it. But there's some decisions that you actually kind of take, a very, very long-term decisions that when you categorically take it, that kind of change the society for, for good, right? Even if it means hurting the business in a short term. And that's like, that's happening. And when, you know, that's because, you know, exact reasons what Ted mentioned about, because they, they know that it is very interconnected, very intertwined. 
right? And that's the reason why you got to go and do it for some set of things that you got to go and do a, a collective response, a, some sort of things that you do for what is good for your unique way in, in your own response for the business perspective. I somehow feel that, uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, you mentioned number of crises, but I think the mother of all crises will be that one crisis. I think the COVID crisis, I think, changed a lot of perspectives across the world. Uh, because I think we've seen war before, if not in Europe, somewhere else, and so on and so forth. We've seen crises of various kinds, geopolitical and so on and so forth, right? People with nuclear war and, and so on and so forth. But I think for the first time, you began to see and understand what is strategic, what is non-strategic. Even the fact that you, don't, you do not produce a mask in a certain geography, a mask, a facial mask becomes strategic in that moment. And so the, the level of connectedness both began to be questioned and also became realist, I mean, right in our faces that that's the, that's the level of connectedness. And I think it has far-reaching consequences, I think 30, 40 years from now when the history will be rewritten. They will tie it back to the year 2020. Very true. They'll Very tie true. it back Very because true. all of these conversations that are happening at board level, somehow they have been, like, they are intimate, they're no longer far away because they are intimate conversations, your own wife, your own daughter, your own son, yourself, you were affected, right? And I cannot but imagine that this is, this is not a turning point. This is a turning point. In fact, you know it, right? I mean, Ted, you and I have been in, in these meetings where, remember in 2016, 2015, when the boardroom conversation was all about customer experience. Yeah. yeah. Nothing else mattered. If the customer experience is good, then you began to realize that you can't do customer experience if internally you, you're not geared up exactly. to deliver that customer experience. Exactly. So the consciousness is moving more inwards in that sense. And then comes this crisis where what you were trying to do internally inside the organization was in question because the people are not there to do it. And in fact, when, uh, you know, it's a very interesting point that you actually bring up in uh, the COVID and then how it kind of uh, people have started looking at it. Uh, you know, in fact, when mother of all crises, right? So when you, when you kind of look at it, COVID, when, till COVID happened, large part of the crisis was actually happening when leaving apart the Second World War, right? So when World War II was the one, again, that brought the entire world together. Which is like, uh, which was happening in pockets. So all the crises were happening in pockets. But COVID became a kind of a very interconnected phenomena that brought the entire, uh, 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 you know, and, and entire things together on the global phenomenal level. That is, that is what it is. Even today, when we look at something happening in China from a shipping standpoint, affects somewhere else in Europe and somewhere else in, you know, like when, you know, in Venezuela as well, somewhere else in South Africa and India, right? Which is like kind of, it's just unimaginable about I mean, the, 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 the level of the uh, uh, effects that are actually kind of happening somewhere that's actually, that's happening in China and I'm not concerned about it, it's, it's not true. You've got to be concerned about it from a business standpoint. And I'm not in that business because I don't deal with supply chain, it's not, it's not true, right? So one chip manufacturing affects a car, which is like a whole Tesla unit that is actually kind of running, it's, 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 a, it's a running machine, uh, has to tell something very startlingly clear that it is all one interconnected uh, type of system that is actually working together. And I hope the lessons that we are learning from COVID by experience and by deep pain, I hope those are not the lessons also that we have to learn by deep experience and pain on the climate side of things. I, it'd be a horrible, horrible prognosis of history on us if still I think we have to go through the pain of climate change to be able to solve for climate change. I think enough example is there. Well, I, I think, Avinash, the, um, the observation you make about COVID, while COVID was experienced differently in different parts of the world and still is today, as we see from the continuing lockdowns in China, 
um, we were all affected by it. Whereas the challenge with climate is that you have perhaps a hurricane in Florida and then perhaps flooding in Pakistan. Um, and we aren't all equally being affected. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's a challenge of learning the lesson, but, but I embrace your optimism that we can, you know, learn from COVID and, um, I mean, honestly, the war right now in Europe, while I agree with you that there have been other wars, you know, it is also having repercussions to the supply chain, to food security, oh, yeah. to, yep. right? So, so we are also seeing those interconnectedness uh, moments. So we do need to start understanding that the world we live in, each of these issues, whether they're environmental, they're um, geopolitical, uh, they are economic, they are um, medical, right? That we are all interconnected and we all need to work together. And, and so going back to your question, um, when I think about the strongest companies and the strongest leaders, uh, they are ones that recognize that interconnectedness and they recognize their role as a company um, uh, in those global supply chains, in the global experience of their employees, in the global experience of the communities that they serve. And presumably they recognize that that's a, a key strategic reason to take certain decisions uh, for the future of their businesses as well, because it's you're not much of a business if the world around you <laughs> that you depend on is collapsing. Um, I think I'll, um, I'll, I'll frame my next question slightly differently, partly because Ted confided in us earlier that he's, he's just welcomed his very first grandchild into the world. Congrats. Congratulations. And, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that my daughter is ex excited <laughs> about having a global audience for this event. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out. Um, oh, good. Ask forgiveness. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring my own... Uh, my own kids into it as well as, as Cobb said. I've got an 11 year old boy um, in a very relatively small number of years. He's going to be entering this world of work that we're talking about. And so to, if we think about things on, perhaps on a more personal level, what should they be doing? What should your new grandchild be thinking about? What should my 11 year old be thinking about in terms of, you know, 10 years from now? What skills, what kind of work environment should he expect and what kind of uh, companies should people be building so that people like him can be welcomed in there productively? Um, maybe that's a slightly vague question, but I feel like it, it might be, well, useful for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with your 11-year-old. Um, so if we are to believe the best thinkers that are working today in the field of artificial intelligence, um, they will tell you that by the end of this decade, uh, we will have computer systems which we can interact with as if they were human beings. So commonly referred to as the Turing test um, uh, after the inventor of this sort of concept of um, many people now I think have seen the movie The Imitation Game, right? Um, the sort of notion that if I had a person and a computer in another room and I was interacting with each of them, could I guess which was the computer and which is the human? And so Ray Kurzweil has been arguing actually for some time back to the 1990s, that by um, 2029, uh, a machine would convincingly pass what he calls the hard Turing test, which is you know, an, a, a multiple hour long interaction by a knowledgeable computer science practitioner who would otherwise be able to sort of catch the machine uh, you know, um, and, and be able to tell the two apart. So, so what does that mean though for an 11 year old today if by the time that they are in, I think you call it uni, um, sure. Yeah. Uh, in the UK, um, uh, by the time he's in uni, uh, he's got this 
companion, this AI companion uh, that he can interact with on a regular basis. I mean, already today, I think professors are tearing their hair out that a student can go and use a large language model like OpenAI's GPT-3 and produce a paper that's as good as any undergraduate paper. Um, uh, so now what happens when you think about three more generations, so if you say roughly doubling every two and a half years, three more generations of that technology, you know, these machines are going to write much better papers than an undergraduate is going to write, right? Um, and so what's the point of education? Uh, well, why won't your 11-year-old say, why am I going to uni, right? What's the point? Um, and he, I think He's already we, saying that about school. Well, but I, I think that he might be motivated by different things. <laughs> why do I need to read? Why do I need to do math? I mean, you know, we all grew up with calculators uh, as a first generation using calculators, right? And uh, we're like, well, do I really need to memorize the times tables? Like, I have a machine here. I can push two times two is four. You know, three times eight is 24. How many of them do you remember? Um, so we're, we're, we're in a world where I think the educational system, so if, if you just think about the sort of near future of your 11-year-old, is woefully letting him down. It is not preparing him for that future of work, in part because we don't know what the future of work is. Um, but what, what I would argue, and, and what comes out of the research that Bain has produced, and we published a terrific report earlier this year called The Working Future, um, is that there are really three core things that we can expect human beings to be able to continue to contribute to society even after the machines become so intelligent that they can pass this Turing test. Uh, the first of which is problem solving. And there are complex problems that need human ingenuity to be able to discover, not that they won't be, by the way, aided by machines. All three of these things, we should expect machines to aid people in doing these things. But problem solving, first of all. Um, second of all, creativity. And third of all, interpersonal connections. And so your 11-year-old should be expecting to live in a world where those are the three contributions that can be made by a human being, and they will be made with technology. So my problem solving will be aided by being able to analyze 31 million different possible configurations of um, molecules uh, that could make up a substance that can then be tested in a laboratory. Right? But directing that machine and choosing and problem solving around what the pros and cons are of the different materials, that's gonna be a human task. Um, creating a movie. Um, is going to be automatically generated by machines. Um, but coming up with the story will still be a human task. Um, and understanding what is going to really move uh, human beings to tears or to, to cries of joy, right? we're still going to have this really important creative role to direct the machine. Uh, and in our interpersonal connections, right? understanding how, how good a job am I doing? You know, what should I be doing more of? What should I be doing less of? Um, you know, what would be the next action? What can I sell Avinash next as we leave the room? Um, <laughs> right? I, I, I'm going to need a machine to help me think those things through, but ultimately it's because I'm here with Avinash and having a warm relationship. Well, now he knows I want to sell him something, so he's a little <laughs> wary. But, um, but presumably it's that human interaction that's going to be still, still important. And so I think the question I would ask if I were uh, uh, your 11-year-old's your parent is, what can I do to change the education that my child is getting to prepare him for that world where those are the three things that he should focus on? Can I take a shot of that? I have a 12-year-old. And uh, in fact, we had this discussion with him. And uh, we came to the conclusion that the fundamental quality that he must develop is not on the answer side. So there are enough technologies, tooling, knowledge banks, that the answer will be available. 
It is the quality of the question that needs to be posed. So developing that faculty, and I, I think you said it even more eloquently than I said it to my son, it's not having the tools to make the movie that you'll be there, but what movie will you make? What is the question you must pose? So even in the Turing test, the Turing test can answer, but can the Turing test pose a question to you and direct it towards a goal? So all technology that we are building ultimately is making decisioning easy, but it is not creating choice. Choice continues to be fundamentally human. So decision can be algorithmic, not choice, that I will choose to do certain things. And in that choice is your choice of what problem will you solve, what movie will you make, what question will you want answered. That is, that, that will be the, and if we can send our, so I said to my son exactly this, that if you can bring out the right kind of problems, forget about the solution, pick up big problems and think about those problems, what needs to be solved, I think that's your education. I mean, well said. I mean, I, in fact, I, mean, I have a, 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 a sophomore, just uh, like uh, 10th grade in, 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 uh, in, in, in high school. Um, interesting thing which is there is like when, when you go ahead and kind of think about I mean, uh, the type of things that, are, that, that changes, right? And so the intricate, intricate uh, uh, aspect of uh, systems interweaving with the human life is inevitable. Wherever you go, like when that is like kind of carrying for. Like for example, like 14 years back when we were not carrying this mobiles, and in fact, when I first remember the Nokia's big rock-like uh, mobile, which was which is like even very difficult to even carry that, right? Now you have like when walking computer in your you know thing, you're driving on a computer, right? And so pretty much, you know, like when the cars are come with a one terabyte, two terabyte of storage that kind of comes in and they go along, that is inevitable. But the key thing which is there is exactly like what. I mean, I was mentioning uh, the choices that you make and what choices that you can actually go and kind of take up. That's a full-on education in terms of for, for, for the kids. That's one aspect. Second thing which is there is like, you know, when you look at I mean, all of these aspects of it, I mean, the, the, the creativity aspect of it is something that machines cannot kind of produce. And it is very, very different. Creativity can be done. People can argue the other side as well. But the key thing which is that creativity is always limited to the framework in which you create. For example, Jasper.ai, but it's another technology which is there like to, to the thing that you're talking about, which is which does extensive blog marketing, extensive content marketing based on artificial intelligence, right? Uh, same thing can be extended to whatever the university papers are, education research papers, etc. when that can be done. But what type of research to be done, that is still a human thing. And that is an important aspect to kind of learn, uh, you know, what, what, what you want to make with these machines. So the, 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 the whole knowledge and education about how to deal with the machines is an important aspect that needs to be kind of taught to the kids. And in fact, when, like, when, when I go back and look at it, like when, you know, today when you don't have to teach people to go and kind of how to play a, a video game, uh, you know, a PlayStation, you know, give them the pack, they unpack, they know what to do with it. That even though they've been exposed for the first time, right? Where does that come from? Because they kind of look at the different set of machines and they know what buttons to press on. That's kind of an intricate knowledge that is actually already developing for the humans. But the key thing which is there is like, what do you do with that machine is an important aspect. And of course, we can see kids doing that all the time. There's a, um, Indeed. A, the, the most popular video games that are played by kids of kids. the age that we're talking about yeah. are inherently creative. They're not prescriptive anymore at all. If you look at things like Minecraft or That's right. Fortnite, these are universes that can be built by the kids themselves. And boy, do they do in extraordinary ways. And I see that every day personally. And maybe by fortune rather than by design actually that's a form of education that's actually already happening uh, from the perspective of creativity um 
Sorry, I haven't asked you again. No, no, I was just making one more point in that discussion, which is also that I think that as much agency that we had by asking a question, getting a certain result, using the technology in our hands, I think our 12-year-olds and our 18-year-olds will have far more agency to ask a question and create impact even with even greater uh, scale and immediacy. And therefore, it is very important to train this generation to be able to ask the right questions, focus on the right problems. Because their ability to be able to do good is as will be as elevated as their ability to be able to do harm. And therefore, the argument comes back to that while STEM knowledge and all this will be important, I think the world will also see an importance and the uh, upward trajectory of humanities. And there are human, unique understanding and the leveraging of uniquely human uh, traits. I think in the last 100 years, there was a sort of a, you know, STEM is everything, technology is everything. And if you could use that, then you can do anything. Now we come a full circle and we begin to realize that well, that is become a tool, and what is uniquely human is those pa parts of our own ethics, our own ability to be able to understand what we want to do in this world. In fact, that that's the third point that he was talking about, right? Which is the interpersonal skills, which is like True. the biggest biggest thing. And I think that is that is not taught so easily. True, it's a, it's a very different thing. Right? Like when it is not a natural thing that kind of comes to the kids. It also cannot. It is also not an easy thing to go and teach the kids as well. It's a, it's an it's an experience that they have to go through themselves, and I think in a form of education in terms of like when, what those interpersonal skills are, how do you kind of put that into kids' head is a is a very very. I will very honestly confess thing. that I have no clue on how to put that into because I see my son, you know, texting all the time. Um, you know, he, he he's sitting upstairs and he texts me downstairs. Why can't you just come down and talk to me? I, I, I think he's using an interpersonal skill for his generation. For his Possibly. generation. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. I just get talked to through Alexa from the same room often. Um, and Alexa, deliberately. tell my father. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it puts an interesting onus on, uh, I think, a, a more recent um, trend, which is where we refer to STEM, but now we don't refer just to STEM, we refer to STEAM, I think, it tends to be called, with the insertion of art into that. And it wasn't all that long ago that scientists weren't called scientists at all. They were called natural philosophers, natural weren't philosophers. they? Uh, which, and that brings in a whole different arena of, of, you know, how do you go about forming logical conclusions about things? And boy, could we do with some more of that at the moment, because uh, critical thinking isn't the same as running with the nearest conspiracy theory. That's a, a warped version of that. And there's not enough of that maybe that's going on that, uh, in there and as much as we rigorously test our kids on basic literacy and maths and things like that actually I think the, the message I'm getting in the room now is that our ability to stitch that into some kind of coherent philosophy about how we govern the machines that are assisting us to make good decisions is perhaps more important than it's ever been particularly as the world barrel rolls towards um, more crises in the future perhaps and, and truly it is and it's the same thing even with the businesses and the uh, and the organizations as well right so like the data is everywhere you see those you see the data elements you see the uh, how it needs to be interpreted but the decisions that are made are the ones which will set you on one path rather but I'm, I'm sure Ted from Bain's perspective you've been kind of you know seeing this and advising the firms and etc when you look at this like when you you have the data in front and what decision to make is 
fully left to the human to what it means, uh, what, what it makes to the business. But that's based on some of the uh, inferences that you make it. And you can't, I mean, systems will kind of tell you that these are the best places to go in, whether these are the best places to go, to go after. But what you do with that has an implication. That implication is actually kind of lost from the system's perspective. That's where the human kind of comes in. What is the implication of making that decision one time? And I mean, famous things which 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 have been like business been out of out of business as well. Blockbuster, when one edition made them to be out of business. Kodak, one edition made them to be out of business. IBM, one edition made them to be out of the PC business. Talking of questions, um, one question that I think is an important one, and that any listeners to this should ask is, where can I find out more? Um, and the answer to that question is Digital Bulletin. And I think I will um, bring our fascinating conversation to a close now, partly because we're very high up above New York and it's incredibly dark outside and I think it's probably time for for people to head home. Um, We have video content and we have a lot more interesting editorial as well, uh, particularly concerning how Bain uh, is working with Wakato and Scan to uh, partner in addressing a lot of these uh, topics uh, around the future of work and what that might look like so please come along to digitalbulletin.com check all that out very soon Uh, and in the meantime uh, we'll say goodbye so thanks very much for joining us uh, today it was a really interesting chat and uh, uh, all the best uh, as you bring about the change in the world that we're talking about thank you thank you thank you